0: Hey folks, I hope you like birthdays, because today is This Week in Law's 100th episode. Yay! We're here with our very first guest, Hank Berry, who's come back along to help us celebrate the big day. Also, Professor Eric Goldman from Santa Clara and Evan Brown. We're going to talk about Hillary Clinton's speech this week on internet and freedom. Also the defunding of the net neutrality proposal and who owns your digital downloads. We've got lots more to talk about too next up on the 100th episode of Twill.
1: Netcasts you love.
0: From people you trust.
2: This,
1: this is Twit.
2: twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.
0: This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 100, recorded February 18, 2011. Likes us some tacos. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com. Folks, it's episode 100 of This Week in Law. We are so happy to be here and happy to have you here along for the ride. And back from episode one, we have Hank Berry. Hi, Hank. Still, Great to have I'm you.
3: still alive after all these years.
0: You're here. We recorded here. episode one of This Week in Law on October 22nd, 2006. Hank wow. was our first ever guest. And uh, we're thrilled you could make back for the 100th episode.
3: Great to be here.
0: So Hank, for those of you who are not familiar with him, is a lawyer at Sidley and Austin in Palo Alto, right, in the Silicon Valley office?
3: Yep, we started with three people uh, December 1st, 2009. We're up to 28 now, and we're having a great time.
0: Congratulations on that. Uh, you You may be most familiar, perhaps, with Hank from his involvement as CEO of Napster once upon a time. But uh, Hank is a brilliant guy who's been around for a long time in the venture capital and legal world around the Silicon Valley environment. So um, has lots of things under his belt, including I was happy to see Hank um, on your uh, online bio, the Attention Trust board member.
3: Yeah, well, absolutely I, I, you were there Denise you saw there. it we're uh, still
0: there you know if you ask Steve yeah. Gilmore what happened to the attention trust he'll say it's still there <laughs> so apparently you know.
3: it's still carrying on it's intended purpose
0: that's right yeah. of, uh, you know as, as Steve always said at the end of his show and especially those who did not tune in so
3: exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's a great organization for those who have not joined Exactly. Perfect. Mm
0: -hmm. So um, attesting to the fact that uh, Hank has been there, done that as far as the world of law and technology goes, is our Never Not Awesome guest, Eric Goldman, making a return for our 100th episode. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us.
2: I'm glad to be here and congratulations on 100 successful episodes.
0: Thank you so, so much. Um, Why don't you tell us, uh, you were telling me you and Hank go way back.
2: Hank uh, was uh, my main inspiration when I was a summer associate at Cooley Godward in 1993. You're Mm -hmm. killing me. (laughs) 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 Got to put the dates out there, Hank. Sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've all been around for longer than we care to admit, no doubt. Um, and, uh, been around Twill for almost its entire history, uh, coming in, I think you came in at episode 17, Evan, if I'm not mistaken, is, yep. uh, Evan Brown joining us once again. Thank you so much, Evan. Good to see hey,
1: you. Hey, well, thanks for having me. Congratulations. This is the day we've been waiting for. It's uh, wonderful, so I'm, uh, so happy to be a part of this and, uh, it's an awesome show. Thanks to, uh, the great work you do, Denise. So happy 100.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, folks, uh, Evan, of course, is our, our regular panelist, and uh, he works at Hinshaw and Culbertson in Chicago and blogs at InternetCases.com. So we have three very powerful internet technology law minds to go through some big issues here today. So the first thing I want to talk about with you guys this week is uh, Secretary Clinton's address on internet freedom um, I actually sat and listened to it all the way through. And if you haven't had the opportunity to do, to do that, it is uh, online through the State Department's website. Uh, we have a link to it uh, in our show notes at delicious.com slash thisweekinlaw slash 100. So um, it's wor- very worthwhile to um, take a listen to the speech. Uh, the transcript is there too. And uh, she had a lot to say about um, confirming The administration's commitment to an open internet in a number of different ways. She was primarily focused on um, censorship and totalitarian sort of regimes and giving the policy reasons why the US has decided, you know, although we do have concerns about um, there are prices to be paid for having an internet as open as we would like to make it that we think in the long run that this is important to the health of society as a whole, um, so that there, there are some really good material there. There are some contradictions that one could readily pull out, and uh, I'd like to um, go through those and any other thoughts you had about the speech uh, with our esteemed panelists today. So, Eric, why don't you start us off?
2: I guess I'm frustrated by the contradictions that are obvious. Um, we're having so many uh, places uh, in my world where the U.S. government is shutting down conversations that may or may not be permissible. And so for the uh, government to come out and say, we want the world to abide by our standards, um, I think we do a very poor job of being a role model. There are two on my mind that I would point to. One is the dogged pursuit of the WikiLeaks uh, enterprise and all the different facets of that. Um, the U.S. government has, I think, been a leader at teaching uh, the rest of the world how you get somebody offline that you really don't like. Of course, the U.S. government learned it couldn't uh, excise content permanently, but it sure gave a good go of it. And the other is the uh, interplay between the uh, COICA and the uh, Department of Homeland uh, Security seizures of domain names. So wait, before
0: you go on, we haven't talked about COICA on the show in a while. Remind people what that is and what the acronym Uh, stands for and what its status is.
2: Well, okay, fair enough. Although, actually, I'm much more interested in the Department of Homeland Security seizures Mm -hmm. because that's a real live activity that's being done by the Obama administration. Right, Um, not waiting for COICA. Exactly, as opposed to a proposed legislation, which um, maybe our infinite wisdom will choose to reject. Um, So Mm. it may or may not be a contradiction uh, that we're discussing that proposal, as much as we have a contradiction with what the administration is doing today with the Department of Homeland Security seizures. Uh, But COICA is an acronym for um, uh, a proposed legislation that... Uh, it will give um, the ability of the administration to basically blacklist certain domain names and cut them off of the internet. Um, it targets domain names specifically uh, the uh, government has to identify domain names that it thinks are engaged in infringing activity uh, and then it uh, requires a bunch of people to follow on uh, and uh, basically shun those sites uh, the uh, The legislation was introduced at the end of um, uh last year it uh died based on the timing uh and it, it has been uh, proposed back and there were just hearings this week uh, to discuss its uh uh its merits
0: right um, so uh, moving on then uh to the contradictions between those and what uh president clinton is proposing as our policy touchstone for the rest of the world Um, Can you explain that in a bit more detail? Let's
2: talk about the Department of Homeland Security domain name seizures. Um, There's been two campaigns, one targeted at counterfeiting and uh, infringing websites, and the other targeting child pornographic websites. Uh, And (laughs) in each case, the Department of Homeland Security uh, under its own uh evaluative standards has identified sites it things need to be kicked off the internet. It has gone to court for an ex parte um, order uh that allows it to then seize those domain names. And then once it seizes domain names, it puts up its little success badge saying, hello, you've gotten here because we grabbed this domain name Um, and aren't we uh, great? Um, And there's some serious due process issues with uh, the way in which the Department of Homeland Security is proceeding. Um, It's a next party hearing, so it's not adversarial. The domain names don't know their target until their domain name has been grabbed. Um, And there's deep issues uh, about uh, grabbing a domain name, which effectively uh, means that they're shutting down that conversation. Uh, And some might call that a prior restraint. We might call it other types of um, uh, First Amendment violative activity. Either way... um, what we have is uh it, without the uh publisher being notified, they're being kicked offline um, in ways that seem to transgress the kinds of spirits that we thought uh spirit that uh we thought that the uh, um uh Clinton was articulated in her talk. Um, one last example of how bad it gets when uh the uh, government makes uh these ex party seizures. Um, Torrent Freak reported that one of the particular domain names it was used was actually being shared by 84,000 websites. Um, uh, I'm still trying to understand exactly what happened. Let's take that as true for a moment. What it meant is all those websites got kicked off all on a next-party basis without notification, and potentially most or all those websites had done nothing wrong
0: love my little slip of, the, slip of the tongue back there where I called her President Clinton. She is, of course, our Secretary of State. She was looking very presidential in this speech, though. Uh, Hank, what were your impressions?
3: Well, uh, the $25 million figure I thought was um, sort of laughable. I, I, I think that if you're going to have what you call a freedom agenda and you're going to go down this path... Of saying to the world that we are the example, then you really ought to step up. But I agree with what Eric said as well. It's everyone's for internet freedom until they're not, and when they're when they're not, it's uh, generally involves political or commercial interests. And uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks working with some Chinese companies, and I've I've been struck about uh, you know how how similar uh, the attitudes are in the United States and China to these things. We sort of point to China as being the place where. Uh, Internet freedom is the worst, but on the other hand, uh, it's a very predictable system of regulations. You can work with it, whereas over here, uh, as Eric just illustrated, it seems kind of ad hoc and uh, no one wants to talk about it. It just goes on. So that concerns me because I am very much for uh, an unregulated Internet and uh, believe that uh, the speech, even anonymous speech, is really important.
0: Right. It, I, for them to even uh, put $25 million out there, you know, I mean, obviously it's a lot of money in some contexts, but in the context of, say, you know, your work as a venture capitalist, it's, it's certainly when we're talking about the global scope and import of the issues Secretary Clinton discussed, um, it's really just a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket of, of what could be applied to this cause.
3: Right, and that, that makes me wonder how serious about it they really are, you know?
0: hmm Absolutely. Um, Evan, in our last episode of Twill, we were talking about these national security letters that uh, have gone out since uh, 2006 under the Patriot Act, um, some 200,000 of them. And the uh, one note that struck me in Secretary Clinton's address was her um, sort of patting the U.S. on the back for... It's being able to balance security concerns against transparency concerns and free speech. And uh, she makes the assertion that here in the U.S., you know, we can feel good about the fact that um, our security measures are all done under the rule of law and subject to appeal. Well, I think that uh, those national security letters are a great example of um, something that is absolutely not Uh, done under at least an appellate sort of uh, rubric. Uh, Would you agree? and, And what do you think of her assertion?
1: Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a good example where there is, you know, a contradiction that we've been talking about. Trying to identify uh, some of those things that are that are contradictory or maybe a bit paradoxical in in what she's saying. And and as I, um, you know, said when we were talking about this in the earlier episode, there's there's certainly the need for a lack of transparency in certain um, investigations. I'm starting to sound like a broken record because I talk about or I say that so much, but. It's just mm-hmm. the sheer volume that really makes it uh, so so scary, and you know that there's something dark and and foreboding uh, happening here. Along those lines, something that shoehorns into this this notion here is something that I picked up on in her talk, and it's her mention of of WikiLeaks, and I was mm-hmm. glad to see that she put the emphasis on the the badness of the WikiLeaks incident being uh, the the initial. Um, unauthorized access and gathering of this information. I guess what private first class Bradley Manning is accused of, of having done. So without, uh, I mean, certainly she's not going to say WikiLeaks is a wonderful thing and, you know, go WikiLeaks and everybody should, should donate and all that stuff if you still can. Um, I think she does a good job of being sensible about that and uh, striking an appropriate balance between uh, transparency and openness uh, in a way, uh, and, and she accomplishes that by putting the emphasis on the real bad thing that happened here, which was the, the, what happened in the first instance with the, the gathering and disclosure of this information, not the means uh, by which it was distributed. So I was pleased to see a certain amount of uh, moderation on her part when it came to that.
0: Right. If Secretary Clinton had been familiar with Professor Goldman, she might have said that uh, the WikiLeaks scenario, I, I thought her handling of that issue was pretty good in the address, is not an instance where cyberspace exceptionalism should be applied. That uh, you know this was a crime, a taking of unauthorized, secure government information, and the means that the crime was carried out is sort of irrelevant in the larger context. Um, Eric, what do you think about that?
2: Uh, fair enough i mean i uh, 'll let's stipulate that a crime occurred, although um, <laughs> I need to know more to to reach that um conclusion with confidence. Um, Mm -hmm. I still, I come back to my earlier point that uh, the pursuit of uh, WikiLeaks and the way in which the government co-opted private entities to do private censorship uh, struck me as um, the problematic piece. And uh, and as I said, what what we're doing is we're teaching all the other countries, this is how you go and kick off content you don't like. And from my perspective, that seems deeply troubling.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, Hank, any further thoughts on this before we move on? No. All right. So um, one of the things I put in our show notes for folks to take a look at, because um, they're just very interesting points that you make. It's, uh, they're not terribly current. They're from a talk that you gave in April of last year, Copyright yeah. at 300, the anniversary of the Statute of Anne. Um, and uh... i put him in there because you gave a nice outline of your talk and i just wondered if you wanted to um, give us an overview of that and sort of the main thrust of uh... what you got across at that time
3: sure well the the point of the talk was really that copyright as a structure right now is sort of trending toward irrelevance because uh... copies physical copies are becoming less and less a part of our lives they 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 uh, comprise that world of stuff that George Carlin talked about you know we have to have a house to get get our stuff so we can have Place a bigger to put your house stuff. So now we can have more stuff and uh, we always said that if people could get these things uh, digitally that they would and it's turning out that that's true um, and so therefore we have to think about the incentives that are supposed to be in uh, in the Copyright Act I think that the, the general Uh, idea that you should give authors some incentive to authorship is a really good idea it's embodied in the Constitution the word copies does not appear there it says exclusive rights and so the idea is what are the uh, bundle of exclusive rights that we give to authors why are we uh, why are we giving them something that may turn out to be irrelevant Uh, uh, right now it's not going to be much of an incentive uh, to have the right to make a printed copy and go vend it when no one wants to buy that printed copy so if we're serious really about um, Giving people rights that incent them, then maybe we ought to think about recasting that bundle of rights. And so, I went down a path in the talk of talking about social media and the fact that uh, content um, is a factor in engagement in social media. It, it can a piece of content, a book, can be a node uh, if you think about a social graph. And and the idea there was that. Um, even though it's true that these nodes are not as powerful as people connections, uh, they are nodes. That's why we have book clubs. People meet, they talk about an object called a book. And the question is just, uh, and I sort of posed it uh, a little bit uh, in order to get people talking, was, well, why don't we have a new statutory right to, I uh, called it a right of community. And if people gather around your work of authorship, whether that's on the internet or through some other means, why wouldn't you have some right to benefit from that? After all, it's it's the thing you created that's resulting in uh, in this interaction, and this interaction is incredibly valuable. Um, And so that was kind of the talk. I talked a little bit about Google Books and and the fact that uh, Google pushed so hard in that settlement for uh, this right called non-display uses, which is really the right of data about what the users are doing with those uh, works of authorship, and that's actually got, what got me thinking about you know the whole topic. So.
0: Great. Well, thanks for that. Um, I, I will just interject uh, since we're talking about. I love that that right of community concept. Um, that's that's well, a really it, interesting it, idea.
3: It, yeah, it doesn't have to be that. Obviously, although I mm-hmm. think that's something to think about. But the notion, the fundamental notion is, if, if printed copies don't matter anymore, then how do you incent authors?
0: Mm-hmm. Right, things have sure changed from uh, the days of Napster when, when having your stuff in one form or another mattered a lot more even then in a digital form uh, than it matters now when things are moving around the interwebs so much more in a streaming way. Would you agree?
3: Well, absolutely, and I just think that we've moved uh, in a space of 15 years from a world of you know, massive uh, physical libraries to um, online libraries, which can be much more powerful, much more accessible. This is great stuff, uh, mm-hmm. but we really, really need to think it through and uh, think about its implications for lots of policies, including uh, this question of copyright, which is just one of the, one of the things to think about.
0: Right. I, I love that you've posited this right of community um, concept because the first time I met you down at the first D conference, you know, looking back <laughs> on that now, I, I realized that, that you were, well before um, any of us, I think, were allowed to be on Facebook, uh, you were a, a walking, talking social network. Um, well, I,
3: I really I enjoyed meeting you, and, and someone said to me, I don't think it was you, someone said, she's the number two Denise on Google. And I
1: said, what, what does that
3: mean? You know, what exactly does that mean? And so I went and I did a Google search and doggone it, uh, there there you were. And uh, so it was very interesting. You were um, you're the first person who explained, um, what was the name of that uh, uh, trackback service in the early days? Technorati, you were the Technorati. First,
1: person.
3: Yeah, first person who explained that to me. And uh, so I, I really appreciated your help.
0: Right. Um, Eric, what do you think about this uh, whole concept of a right of community as opposed to copyright?
2: Well, first of all, Denise, you'll always be uh, the number one Denise, Denise to me. So. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> Thank you so much. And
0: I'm, I'm always the number one Denise to me, or I'm close, because, you know, Google now tweaks the results to customize them to you. So
2: Oh, definitely. My blog always shows up as the top search for anything that I'm looking for because Google knows uh, that I like uh, my own words. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, uh, actually, I think uh, what Hank's describing really gets at the heart of um, – The incentive issue uh, both in copyright and frankly in trademark um, that we're wrestling with um, and we don't have a good way of resolving it. I'm not sure if a new right would solve it, but I think the question actually really focuses us on uh, the right issue. When I teach copyright and trademark in my IP survey class, I talk about um, how uh, the IP owner is trying to extract revenues not only from the direct sale, but from all of the fans that are generated from the uh the the uh, work that's protected by intellectual property and uh we start to, to explore um, how uh this fan community can uh be both motivated and discouraged through the application of intellectual property laws and so um, I actually think it's a great business law question. Um, How does an IP owner cultivate and extract cash from a group of fans? Um, And it might be the answer is that by letting go of intellectual property, they get more cash value out of their overall fan base. And that may be an empirical question. It may vary by uh, IP owner, but I think it's the right question to be asking for in so many of the cases that I teach in the class.
0: Right. right. Well, we have a lot more to discuss, and uh, I want to get next into talking about Taco Bell making lemons out of lim- or lemonade out of lemons, or maybe they're somehow making tacos um, out of a lawsuit. But before we get to that, uh, I want to thank our sponsor for this show, Squarespace. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. I mentioned on one of our recent shows that I had helped a friend set up her Squarespace site, and that is now up and running, and you can go see what we were able to accomplish um, very quickly and using all the preset templates there. She is a not very Internet-savvy person, but she was able to completely come in and take over the site. You can check it out at lorysworld.com, L-O-R-R-I-S, world.com. And I have no compunctions about sending tons and tons of traffic her way because one of the things that Squarespace does is optimize its bandwidth for users to make sure that it's extraordinarily difficult to bring someone's site down. So um, if you want to check out the site that we cobbled together, and she, of course, used her offer code, Um, to be able to use a 14-day trial by going to squarespace.com slash 12. Make sure she really, really wanted to sign up for the service. Uh, The basic service is just $12 a month, and you can get more bandwidth bandwidth and more bells and whistles for... um, different tiers of service above that. But uh, the $12 a month service is really, really powerful. There's a lot that comes with it, probably most that most users would need. The UI, as uh, we demonstrated when we set up her site was completely easy and intuitive to use. You can drag and drop things around in a really nice way. You can move quickly from editing the text to editing the actual structure of the site. There are hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can just sort of try them on. It's like a fashion foot show for your blog. You can uh, click a button and change the entire look and decide exactly you know, what sort of look you're going for and then tweak it from there. It's an all-inclusive service for your monthly fee. There are several modules to add to create exactly the kind of site that you want. There's a blog module, um, forums, there's a form builder, Flickr photo display. There are widgets that easily allow you to incorporate things like Twitter and Facebook and your entire social media world. There's Google Maps and more. And of course, the statistics and tracking that are built in are excellent. They make wonderful pie charts, if you're the kind of person who's into that. There's permission access handling so that multiple people can contribute to the site. There, I mentioned the cloud architecture and it it really is wonderful. It's very difficult to bring one of these sites down. The Ajax interface is so intuitive that uh, you don't need to be an expert to use Squarespace. But if you are a CSS expert, you're gonna like it even more because uh, it just gets out of your way and you can do your stuff. Um, exactly as you want to. There's an iPhone app and soon to be an iPad app coming along. So use Squarespace for all your website needs. Build it, host it, and update it any time. You get a 14-day free trial when you go to squarespace.com slash twill. You don't need a credit card, just try it out yourself and build your own site. Be sure to check out all of their example sites so that you get an idea of all the different looks and features that are available and check out lorysworld.com to see one that I cobbled together myself in a matter of about half an hour. Uh, That's squarespace.com slash twill. Thanks so much for your support Squarespace. So guys, let's talk about Taco Bell real quick. This is something that uh, one of our listeners put my way and uh, I think it's a pretty um, interesting approach toward a class action lawsuit uh, what Taco Bell is being sued for um, what is actually being used to make its beef tacos. Yeah, who, wants to know, who wants to know this is the question. That's crisis. right. <laughs> exactly. It's, you don't know, want to know how sausage is made. You don't want to know how Taco Bell tacos are made. All I know is that when I was pregnant, all I wanted to eat was In-N-Out Burger and Taco Bell. So
2: Absolutely.
0: Near, near and dear to my heart. Um, they are being uh, sued in a class action sort of way about the beef. But uh, rather than just sort of lay back, I'm not quite sure why they've decided to do this um, other than just from pure PR. I suppose it could pay, play some role in the lawsuit, but uh, they are... Um, offering all kinds of incentives and bonuses to folks on Facebook for coming along and liking the site. And they've picked up an additional 100,000 likes. Um, Eric, do you see uh, social media starting to play a larger role in lawsuits as they unfold um, from a sort of we're a good guy standpoint?
2: Well, so first of all, um, if viewers don't know, I'm a vegetarian. And so for me, the idea that uh, there's battles over what is beef is just a little bit uh, foreign to me. Um, I would have started with the premise that anyone who didn't understand that Taco Bell beef is not really beef kind of gets what they deserve. But I'm sorry, it's a little bit too much (laughs) caveat emptor, perhaps. Um, So. (laughs) But, I, I mean, I do think that we're seeing an interesting new way of battling back against these false advertising lawsuits. Um, if you think about it, most false advertising lawsuits are designed to fix a, a marketplace um, misperception um, about a problem. and it could be extremely damaging even if the uh, the defendant wins in those cases. Um, you know, There's this cloud of doubt over the authenticity and legitimacy of the content that's being produced by the advertiser um, it's so long as the loss is in place and perhaps even thereafter. And so uh, Taco Bell, I thought, uh, did a really neat job of battling back um, on the court of public opinion saying, mm-hmm. look, you guys who cares what percentage of beef is beef? Um, you guys like our junk food, and we're going to give it away to you for free. Come and be a part of our community. This goes right back to what we were just talking about with um, uh, Hank's proposal. Um, you know, Taco Bell notes it's catering to this community of fans, and uh, instead of trying to get all lawyerly on the community of fans, they said, we're going to shower you with gifts. Be loyal to us some more. I thought it was brilliant. Evan, you can do
0: you see? Her. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead Hank. Hank.
3: I was going to say, you can get a crunchy seasoned beef taco for for just for liking Taco Bell. It's fantastic.
0: It is. Gonna have but to you go over it, there. Hank?
3: Sorry. Uh, I have not personally taken advantage of the
2: opportunity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they they wouldn't. You, I, I, they I wouldn't like be as good this, as those tacos we had at D, though.
3: Oh, uh, that is true.
0: Um, <laughs> but <laughs> we, but we three thousand dollars
3: cheaper. You know. Yeah, $3, that's true. More. So, uh, so, Eric, I, I like this uh, question, maybe issue, of uh, paying for likes on um, on Facebook. So what do you think about that?
2: Uh, great question. And we could try it another way where uh, advertisers are being allowed to do the sponsored stories on Facebook, which are also basically pulling out status reports and uh, the advertisers paying to uh... show them um... and uh... facebook definitely raises a bunch of questions about what is advertising and when is something that is uh... an editorial decision also commercial enough that we treat it like an advertisement um, i don't see any inherent problem with quote paying for likes um, i imagine that if there was some kind of um, uh... surreptitious um, issue uh... Uh, that wasn't being disclosed. We might have um, greater concern about it, but um, I think the rules are clear. You you, you get a, what was it? Crunchy seasoned beef taco Um, for a like, I mean, you know, that's an open market transaction. I think Mm -hmm. the hard part is that many people um, may not understand that when you like something, a bunch of extra things happen in Facebook's database. And so um, though we might view it as a fully informed economic transaction, um, I personally would need to be bought with something much more expensive than a crunchy seasoned beef taco. And of course, it would have to be vegetarian as
0: well. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> according to the lawsuit, it, it mostly is.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm sorry, Denise. Just to be clear, there, yeah. in my world, there is a difference between mostly vegetarian and vegetarian. It's yeah. kind of like off the cliff.
0: <laughs> right. Got it. Um, Evan, I'm I'm a little worried when I uh, think about this whole issue um, that Taco Bell is um, engaged in incentivizing these likes. In an effort not just to build public opinion, but to build public opinion among potential jurors.
1: Yeah, that's a that that's a good point. I mean, there's there's no doubt that there's a lot of attention anyway on on all of this. And so, what makes it more complicated in that uh, situation there is they're actually giving something of value to these potential jurors. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's certainly nothing wrong with them doing PR or, or whatever for uh, to whomever it is that's going to get that message. But what what complicates it definitely is is giving stuff away. Actually, giving some consideration for you to you know think of think of. Um, taco Bell in a, in a positive way. Hey, you know,
2: Evan. Uh, hey Evan. Hey, Evan. Yeah. Can I join on that? Um, sure. Would, in part of Wadier, would uh, you kick off a juror who actually did uh, like the uh, face, uh, the on Facebook to get the taco?
1: Oh, Is yeah. Not only you would, would you do that, but you would send a subpoena to Facebook and get their whole profile List. information. Yeah. Yeah. You know, very aggressive
3: yeah, I think that, the, the, uh i sorry to interrupt, but I think that, the, that there's a business issue here about gaming the graph. You know, people have really learned how to game search in, in some really strange ways um, to affect the results. Uh, we were talking about that a little bit earlier um, on Google, but I think uh, this is... One of the first times I've seen, uh, at least explicitly, people come out and say, we're going to change the density of the social graph using money to do that. And Eric was right when he said there's a lot of things that happen that come out of these kinds of connections because they affect the algorithms that determine what people get served up uh, on Facebook as being something that they might want to connect with. And so to the extent that you've you know affected that by uh, essentially increasing the number of connections, you've really gamed in a way, I'm sure Facebook is all over this, but you gamed the graph in a way that uh, pushes people to do one thing or another. So there's actually some pretty savvy advertising and uh, cultural manipulation is too strong a word, but uh, cultural uh, attention being paid here, I think.
0: Right. Um, Unless uh, anybody else has any uh, crunchy seasoned beef comments to contribute along (laughs) these lines, um, I'd like to move on to uh, something that Eric contributed, uh, wanted to talk about today, and that is Microsoft's new trademark policy that is a Google-style policy toward keyword ads. You want to tell us about that?
2: Yeah. So uh, for seven years or more, we've been battling over uh, key, uh, search engines selling trademarked keywords to advertisers. So uh, Coke can buy the Pepsi keyword and display a Coke advertisement to new searches for the word Pepsi. Um, and uh, let's put aside for a moment whether the advertiser is committing trademark infringement by purchasing that uh, that keyword. Um, that remains to be a more complicated question. Um, but uh, a number of plaintiffs have gone after the search engines for selling those keywords uh, to an advertiser uh, for these uh, usually competitive purposes. Um, Google, for a long time, has had an idiosyncratic policy. They've said, effectively, um, trademark owner, if you are unhappy about our sales of your trademark as a, um, a keyword, uh, tough. What we'll do for you is we will block your trademark from showing up in the ad copy, but we're going to keep selling the uh, trademark whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and other search engines have said uh, no, we will actually disable uh, those keywords so that they cannot be purchased uh, whatsoever. Um, including Microsoft and Yahoo. Um, Now, Microsoft and Yahoo have basically merged into one entity for this purpose. Um, Microsoft is handling Yahoo's ad sales in this area. Um, And Microsoft, just this week, announced that it's going to change its policy to become just like Google's. Um, So they're going to now uh, refuse trademark owners' requests to stop selling the trademark as keywords for advertising. And I thought this was interesting in a couple of fronts. First of all, it shows how much progress Google has made in clarifying the legal framework. Um, But also it raises the question whether Microsoft is getting a little bit desperate. Um, This is clearly uh, going to increase their revenues from their search engine advertising uh, uh, offering. And I wonder if they're making just a pure cash grab here in ways that we're not used to seeing Microsoft doing.
3: Whoa, 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 whoa. So you use this phrase clarifying the legal framework. Google has made progress in clarifying the legal framework. They've made progress in getting things to go the way they want it to go. Okay, that's what they've done. And uh, I think we have to give some credit to Microsoft here. I I don't suppose I'd normally be in that position. But this is is a group that has really, over time, taken, I think, a very thoughtful approach to everything they're doing on the uh, intellectual property front. And I think that they've Tortured over it a little bit. I know some people that are there, and uh, and they've come out with policies that I think have been very thoughtful, and they've changed them uh, only when um, you know things got quote unquote clarified over a long period of time. So, um, and by the way, I have this uh, strange little uh, thing going on with my eye, so apologize for that. But um, I think I think it's really uh, you know to just say that Microsoft is desperate is um, it's not good. I think that they're they they've, they've uh, moved from the position that they had over a long period of time and, and, the, and I think to their credit I think they've been thoughtful about all these issues copyright patent uh, whatever you want to say to my view anyhow.
0: right well this is certainly a sweet spot for your blog Eric the technology and marketing blog as we are right at the the crux of tech and marketing uh, with keyword ads um, do you do you see any um, how do you think this is going to develop going forward
2: uh... Ooh. I personally think we're at the end of these battles. Um, Mm -hmm. We've had a number of lawsuits over the years, um, well over a dozen different uh, challenges to Google's practices. Um, They're not complete, but I think that we're nearing the end of it. And so I think we're just going to move on. I think we're going to find, trademark owners are going to find some other interface to freak out about, uh, whether it's the way that Twitter allows uh, its ad sales, or Facebook allows its ad sales, or something like that. I think that we're going to look back uh, the 2000s and uh, you know into 2010 as a time when trademark owners really got uh, overzealous about uh, their rights in the search engine context. And I think you know 20 years from now we'll look back and say, what in the world were they worried about? Why were they freaking out so badly? Um, so in that sense, I think we're we're at the end of this process and moving on to the next freakout.
0: All right. Well, let's move on to uh, something that might or might not make some of our listeners and viewers freak out uh, when they think about it, because it's not something you think about every day. It's also our tip of the week. This will be our last story, and it's a story from Ed Bott at uh, the Microsoft Report at ZDNet called Who Owns Your Digital Downloads? Hint, It's Not You. And Ed's point is something we've discussed on the show before, that um, the ownership rights that you might think that you have in something that you've bought from either Amazon, if it's a, a digital artifact from them, or from iTunes, or from eMusic, that the terms of service around these things really specify that what you're getting is, is not a file that you have ownership rights in. And this leads to some really weird things when you try and do um, things like sell an iPod that is loaded up with stuff that you've downloaded from iTunes. Um, But what you've gotten from these folks is a license and how those licenses play out when you go and try and do something like sell an iPod. Um, It makes for some interesting discussion, but the tip here is just that, uh, you know, hint it's not you as Ed says, that uh, there is this language in in the licensing agreements that specifies that uh, these things that you are possibly building up your library um, and again, we're moving away from this kind of a world where things are these digital artifacts that take up hard drive space and more towards a streaming uh, environment, as we talked about earlier today. Um, but it's it bears noticing and paying attention to Um, that your rights and things from eMusic and Amazon Music and iTunes are going to be different than if you go and buy a CD. And Ed's takeaway is, so go and buy the CD. But is that really a realistic uh, thing to be telling people? I mean, it's like, you know, okay, well then let's also just go back and watch some Archie Bunker while we're at it. What do you think, Hank?
2: Well, there's
3: a whole line of cases starting uh, with uh, in the 30s having to do with uh, people putting restrictions on sound recordings and uh, you know they started out saying no you can't and but I think we're in a way we're past that now and I think it's clear to everyone that these are licenses you have limited rights in them there is no first sale associated with them the the real tragedy of this of course is that for record company accounting purposes they account to their artists as if these are uh, sales and not licenses most record contracts provide for a 50-50 split on license revenues and only like a 90-10 split in favor of the record company on on, uh, on sales and so uh, even though you you think you've got a license and the record company says to the vendor that they're giving a license um, you know they account to the artist as if it's only a retail sale there's been some court cases around that and we'll see how it turns out but um, you know I, I, I don't know it doesn't bother me that much does it bother anybody else
0: I think it's bothering people less and less um you know that they're figuring out how to um navigate this world and that there's less friction around um what you can do with certain things although um eric may disagree with me do you eric uh,
2: you know um i look at this actually really it's a marketplace issue that if people mm-hmm. understand what they're buying and they make a good smart, informed choice for themselves. um, I don't have a problem with saying you can buy 100% rights, or you can buy uh, 90% rights, or you can buy 70% rights um, based on whatever you value. Um, That's not the reality we're in, unfortunately. And so the theory sounds great. In practice, I think there's still many people who think when I Mm -hmm. download uh, from iTunes, I'm getting the exact same thing as if I ripped that same music from my CD. So... (laughs) we're not at the point where I think consumers are making the right choice for themselves. um, uh, Fully informed. Um, Perhaps that will change over time. Perhaps uh, the new generation, whatever that means, uh, will understand that um, a download is a restricted version and that's all you get to do with it. And uh, you know, that's the deal. And in theory, that creates marketplace opportunities for someone to offer a different or perhaps better deal. Um, So, uh, so i I don't have a single answer for this. I, I know that I value the first sale right a lot, um, and in fact, I have frequently gone and bought CDs as opposed to downloading uh, the music online. Frankly, it's actually because I can buy a UCD cheaper often than I can download that same music. Mm. Um, So there's a weird price inefficiency that uh, the cost of the physical object uh, used plus shipping is often cheaper than a fresh download of the bits. Um, I don't know when that will change, and as time, as fewer CDs get get released in the marketplace, perhaps that will fix itself. Um, But, uh, you know, the first sale is great. I buy used uh, content all the time, and uh, oftentimes for less than I would have had to spend to to download.
0: Right, and then you probably rip it, and then resell it, because who wants to store the dang things, and off it goes to lead another life. I, I,
2: I comply with the law.
0: (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, well, but but the point's out that we're moving toward a service model because all this is pretty inconvenient, and and people just want the service so. yep. itself.
0: Th- yep, absolutely. Evan, uh, any any further nuances on this point?
1: Well, just on that point, there, looking at it as a service model, that would seem to underscore a real. Uh, tension or weak point, I guess would be more accurate way of saying it in copyright law where it 's there and, and this is I think we were talking about this earlier in, in you know some of hank 's comments from that uh, event uh, last April about how the notion of copying is declining in importance the, the, the notion of the right to copy is declining in importance, and now with uh, things more in a, as a network and the ability to stream. Content and kind of have access to it wherever you are uh, across platforms, uh, you know, on different devices. It seems to me that the the emphasis in copyright should be more toward a right of access rather than a right mm-hmm. of, of copy. And that's a that's a motif that we that we talk about from time to time on here. It seems to comport better with uh, the way that the model is. Uh and it's being afforded by the the, technolo- the technology that's 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 there and that is emerging.
3: Right. Well that's, that's right. Been, that's right. I know
1: you gotta wrap, but I think that the key yeah. thing there
3: is that we have new uh it, it really is a new world and, and I'm sort of the last person who you would think would be talking about additional rights under copyright. But I think it is time to, to sort of reframe all those and if it means coming up with new rights that are early on seem to be more expansive, I'm o- I'm okay with that because I think authors uh, need these incentives.
0: That's what hey, I was um, going to say is on your next trip to Washington, Hank, right of access, right of community, <laughs> I forward to you swaying our lawmakers. Uh,
2: if I can just jump in briefly, uh, just to mention, I, in a sense we do already have the right of access, and that's the uh, anti-circumvention laws and the DMCA. Um, and we're seeing a number of copyright owners use those provisions to do exactly what you're describing, to control access to a server uh, that contains their uh, copyrighted material. Yep. Yeah but that, but that's 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 lame
3: that's ad hoc that's uh, it, you know it's a real stretch it's a real stretch and that's why we need to con- reconsider the law i think yeah. yeah
0: yeah um i have a couple of resources of the week to toss out there and uh we'll mention that yes people who are who are uh, ticked off or find their expectations uh not met with respect to their digital downloads and what they can do with them might uh, use ripoff.com, which uh, Eric has a great post up on his technology and marketing law blog right now that we didn't get to in our story, but I, uh, in our stories today, but I encourage you to go read. Um, hey, De- another Denise,
2: thing, Denise, I'm sorry. Yes. You, you mean ripoffreport.com com? Yes. Sorry,
0: ripoffreport.com com. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> ripoff.com. <laughs> um, yeah. President, like-
1: President Clinton goes to ripoff.com. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: Um,
0: that uh, yeah, this looks like the 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 current iteration or the next generation of consumer reports is ripoff report, but there's so much good stuff over on Eric's blog. Um, one that I want to call out as our one of our resources of the week are uh, your report on the top five cyber law developments of 2010, Eric. I think uh, if anyone hasn't checked it out yet, they definitely should. It's good context for where we are now. And uh, also I want to point people toward um, Doc Searle's blog where he has a great post up this week called The State of the Room, V-R-O-O-M. Just a great big aggregation with commentary on uh, stuff going on in the vendor relationship management arena, which we've talked about on the show a lot, um, trying to shift people's way of thinking about data and its control. to the user as opposed to what you have with various uh, vendors and what they can do with it. So um, definitely check out uh, the latest from Doc Searles putting it all together over on his site. And uh, I'll just go around uh, one time and see if you guys have any closing final thoughts as we wrap up Twill 100 here. Hank?
3: I just want to say congratulations, Denise. It's It's a great show. You've done a great job.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to have you back, and I uh, hope we don't have to wait another hundred episodes to do so. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, folks, Hank is on Twitter. He's Hank Berry over there. Go follow him, and uh, it's definitely I think I have three good.
3: followers now, maybe good. four. Well,
0: so I just followed
2: we- you today, Hank. Oh,
0: okay, yeah.
2: thanks.
3: Well,
0: you've got to tweet a little more. You're a little few and far between with your yeah, tweets. We'd yeah. love to hear more from you. So, because you always have brilliant things to say. So uh, <laughs> let, let us encourage you to, um, to share more of them with the world in that format and whatever other format, including being here on our show. We really loved the chance to talk with you today. So thanks so much.
2: Great
3: to be here. Thank you.
0: Eric, uh, never not awesome to have you. So glad you could join yeah. us again for the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, and what a treat to be on the 100th uh, episode. Uh, you know, I feel like I should have brought out my uh, pom poms or my um, kazoo or something to uh, celebrate properly. Um, but uh, another great show. Always a pleasure. Um, it's, uh, you, you do, uh, this, this whole series has been fantastic.
0: Thank you so much. And I promise the next time I'm up in your neck of the woods when I offer to take you to lunch, it'll be at the local Indian restaurant and not Taco Bell.
2: Fantastic. I will even treat.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, folks, go uh, check out Professor Goldman's uh, technology and marketing law blog, and you can follow him on Twitter at Eric Goldman. And Evan, thanks so much for being here today and for so many twills. It's great to wrap up the 100th show with you
1: for sure and the only thing that would have made it better is to see professor goldman with pom poms and a kazoo so it's going to take a while to get get that image uh, out
0: and so. and a 35 percent beef taco
1: that's right we'll <laughs> never see that i i, I trust but uh, but again congratulations it's uh, it's such a pleasure to uh, to join you here every week I, I i love it and uh wonderful show so uh, awesome work
0: Thank you so much and awesome work to you too. And uh, we'll end this mutual admiration society by uh, suggesting that folks continue to follow along with your awesome work during the week at internetcases.com and do follow along with tool during the week at facebook.com slash this week in law, where we put up our pre-show questions and love to get your feedback on the things we should and will talk about during the show and tune into us live on Fridays, 11 pst and 1900 utc at live.twit.tv and follow along with us in the irc at irc.twit.tv. We love having you along with the ride for us as we record the show. And uh, with that, we'll see you soon for episode 101. Take care, everyone.